Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And we are track walking. This week, Seth regales us with victories and triumphs. Um, not the motorcycle specifically, but um, you had a motorcycle race over the weekend. We did. We had the final race of the season this weekend. So that was uh, it was a wrap-up to my first complete season of racing anything ever. Um, I've never competed in all the events of a series of any form of motorsports in my life until this year. And you're here to tell the tale. You survived it. I am. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with telling people... So basically all motorcycling motorcycle racing in the united states is regional uh with the exception of moto america which is kind of the only or as far as road racing goes because i road race motorcycles um yep so moto america is the only national series in the country really and everything else is regional and if you want to get like even more regional i race small motorcycles um with a group called texas mini grand prix and that's all uh, two-stroke motorcycles that are, if they're two-strokes, they're 85cc and under. If they're four-strokes, they're about 160cc and under. Um, and we race on go-kart tracks here in Texas. So we race um, on two tracks in Houston, north of Houston. Uh, we have Speed Sports Racing Park. Uh, west of town is the Gulf, Course, Gulf Coast Cartway. And then in Denton, Texas, they have North Texas Carters. And so we have those three tracks, and the series travels around, and we race uh, tiny motorcycles. Arguably, we race children's motorcycles on go-kart track, <laughs> and uh, we have a tremendously good time with it. Um, well, if you if you race anything much larger than that on a go-kart track, that would be a rough time. <laughs> one of the guys who we practice with uh, off and on is uh, races for Yamaha World Superbike this year. Oh. And this this last weekend, he took two second places and crashed out in the third race. Um, his name is Garrett Gerloff, and he's a local in the Houston area. And he, when I met him, he was racing a 450 Supermoto on the track. Jesus. And I was racing my Honda XR100, and it was literally the most horrifying experience in the world to have him go by me at almost twice my speed and then back the motorcycle into a corner and just do mind-blowing things. And I'm like, you know, 10 days into riding at that point, trying to drag <laughs> me and do things like that. And uh, so, yeah, people do race bigger bikes on go-kart tracks, but they're all way, way better than I am, they're which is actually sound... not hard to be. Well, they also sound a little crazy. <laughs> um, motorcycle so racing the... is in general slightly like you have to be a little bit unhinged to be like yeah that looks like a good idea <laughs> so the the kind of racing that you did this year um sprint race endurance race talk um tell us a little bit about the the format so um we did both uh, a lot of motorcycle racing organizations are sp split a weekend into one day will be uh, endurance racing day. And so the, the enduros will be, depending on the organization, between like two hours and in four, six hours, something like that. And then the second day will be sprint racing day. That's pretty, uh, not an uncommon format um, throughout the country to do that. Uh, our, our organization does the same thing. So, so traditionally Saturdays are endurance racing day 
and we have either a four or six hour enduro and then sunday is sprint races and our sprint races are uh, a little bit unique actually they're kind of in some ways, they remind me of grid life, which is when you heard Adam Jabay talk about the fact that the best part of a race is the first, you know, the first three laps and the last three laps. Yeah. Um, our races are six to eight laps long. Perfect. And because of the, the class structure, we have 26 races in a day. Um, That's so many. And like you, you personally don't, but I don't personally does. do. So, so it's there's 26 <laughs> separate classes that you could possibly race in, and most people qualify. I mean, basically everybody qualifies for more than one class. So, if you have like if you have the the slowest class bike, which is an F7 bike, there will be like F7 novice and F7 expert and F7 motard, so dirt bike style ones, or F7 GP, so they look like little proper race bikes. And then you can have the dinosaur class, which is for old people. And there's the ladies class. And it just goes on and on. And there's all these different classes. So when my daughter and I race, we each have five races that we do because we find that emotionally that's about all we can handle in a given day. Um, there's a bunch of people who race. Uh, one of the girls who races endurance on our endurance team races, I think she races 11 races in a day um, because she wants like so to. Many. It does. It's a lot. She has a, a sequence of them that are usually four races back to back where you race, you know, it's six laps and you do, you come into your lap and she comes right into the pits and goes right back out of the pits to go to go to grid with the next group. There's no pause between the two of them. It's super intense and completely insane. And I, I know from, from my point of view, I mean, I'm, I'm in a car when I race. I literally strap myself rigidly into the car. And certainly not saying it's not physical. Certainly it's mentally and emotionally draining sometimes. But I do get physically tired. But it's not anywhere near the level of physical interaction that I'm doing versus what somebody who's racing a motorcycle is doing. So to hear you say that somebody's putting hours into racing a motorcycle sounds exhausting it is exhausting in general when we do it like the so the the endurance racing is the is usually the part that's that's the most exhausting um it's a four, usually for a four hour enduro we try to have our team tries to have between two and four people and we do half hour stints so you do half an hour on the bike and then you'll come in and you know do a hot swap of the bike so basically, you're in, you hop off, the next person hops on, they go back out. It adds about uh, 15 to 18 seconds to a lap for us to swap riders. Wow. Um, and that's, that's, you know, most, the majority of that is just because you have to go slower through the pits and then you come back out. Um, and half an hour on the bike at race pace is really, really tiring. Um, we have this, this, and, and the other thing is it's during the summer in Texas is most of it. Um, we had we have races that are where it's literally 102 degrees outside, and we have to go race a motorcycle for four hours, and we're all wearing leathers. And a you know, we're wearing and flip flops. Yeah, no, no, no. So we're wearing like 18 pounds of cow 
you're you're wrapped up so that you don't die and you're wearing um we actually this year we started wearing open face motocross helmets because they're legal to wear during that series because the airflow difference like how much air you have blowing through in a motocross helmet is just huge compared to what you can get blowing through uh, a normal closed face helmet um which is is arguably it's definitely safer to wear those helmets um sure. but we're it's also safer to not have heat exhaustion and then fall off the bike. So we're, we're trying to balance that sort of thing. Brief, brief aside, do they make anything like the cool shirts for bikes? I, I understand that the problem would be where do you put the cooler? Um, but you wear it, there... you, you wear it in a backpack. Um, so oh. people have used this before. We don't generally, we've experimented with them. Um, you wear it in a camelback. You fill a camelback with ice cubes and water. You have an inlet and an outlet and a tiny battery powered pump. Um, <laughs> and they are legal for us to wear endurance racing to the best of my knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. we've experimented with them in practice, um, and just haven't implemented them to our race strategy yet. Um, although we've, we definitely talked about it. Are they, do they actually help? Do they make a difference? Yeah. They, they won't keep you cool <laughs> for the whole half hour. Um, sure. um, and I think all of us are a little bit tentative about falling while wearing that. Not so much for us, um, but to fall and get water all over the track would uh, be yeah, yeah, yeah. like a significant uh, social faux pas um, to all of a sudden potentially cause someone else to crash um, because you did that. And that's that's created some of the hesitation in us doing it. Gotcha. But you're allowed so, to have a camel back on to take a drink during it. So it's all in that realm of, of legal. Mm -hmm. um, okay. we, just, we just don't. So... You've, when you set out to do this season, did you intend, like with intention, did you start, I'm going to do this entire season or did it yeah. just, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I started racing last year. I raced the last two events of the season. Um, and I actually broke my collarbone in the, the second event. So the last race of, of last year's season, I broke my collarbone. And, and we... And then what did you do after you broke your collarbone, Seth? Oh, well, I finished the race because it was just kind of like a thing. So you, <laughs> so that was that was actually... There's a whole other story about that. It was a six-hour endurance race. Uh, I broke my collarbone. Bone. Um, we were doing one hour stints at that time as an experiment, which was a stupid experiment, but there's only two of us riding and I broke my collarbone, um, about 40 minutes into my first stint you fell. and I fell. Um, I misjudged the closing speed, um, that I had on a person and, uh, I was still a pretty inexperienced racer at that point. And when I thought I could ride around her, I had somebody pull up like go to pass me at the same time and all of a sudden I had no avenues of escape so rather than hit her which seemed like super bad form I grabbed a handful of front brake and I went over the handlebars um, just you know completely over the handlebars landed on my shoulder broke my collarbone and uh, got up started the bike finished the stint um, by like five or six laps later 
I was, and this was my this was my right collarbone, so my my throttle and brake hand. And five or six laps after I had fallen, I I knew I broke my collarbone. Like it, it wasn't like I was reaching over with my left hand and pushing on it through my leathers, and I could feel that it was broken. Oh god! And um, so I finished my stint and I came off the track. And my this wife doesn't there. happen in auto racing. I just want everybody to know. <laughs> yeah, so, so I come off the track, and my wife is there, and she's like, she's like, you know, of course I had crashed, and they knew I had crashed, but I got back up and I kept going. And she's, she's like, you okay? And I said, I broke my collarbone. She's like, what? I said, it's broken. It's definitely broken. Here, help me take my leathers off a second. And she helps pull them off, and you can like, you can see through the shirt that I had on that my collarbone was broken. And she's like, oh, my God, we got to go to the hospital. I'm like, now we'll do it after the race. She's like, what do you mean? I said, it, it doesn't really hurt that much. I can ride. I've already ridden 20 minutes on it at this point. So I can ride on it just fine. And, and I said, and there was only two of us on the team that day because, our, weirdly enough, our other teammate had broken his leg on the same motorcycle two weeks before that. Um, just, it's... Yeah, it's motorcycle race. It's safe. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Yeah. So yeah. the thing was, if I went to the hospital at that point, my teammate could not finish the race by himself. He would have had to have ride five of six hours in 95 plus degree heat. Physically impossible. Couldn't be done. You're, you're being a good teammate. Uh, yeah. So it was like, it seemed reasonable to do that. And, and I, I acknowledge, I was like, I can't ride as fast. I'm going to have to back it off like three or four seconds a lap. Because if I fall over with a broken collarbone, this is going to be bad. Like, Yes. It's going to be super unpleasant. Yes. So about half an hour into my teammate's stint, I I said, help me put my leathers back on because it feels better with my leathers on because they're... they're Support. Leathers aren't rigid, but they're very supportive, right? It's like wearing a, a big soft cast thing. And you can see that when motorcycle racers, like off the bike, like their arms are held in the proper position and, and you know, they look weird standing there. And that played to my favor because it really helped the collarbone hold in place. And so with my leathers on, I felt fine. So I did race my last two stints and uh, went to the hospital after that. So that was last year. That's how we ended the season last year. Um, yes. Uh, I'm glad you told that story because I was going to bring it up if you didn't. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, motorcycle's totally safe. Don't worry about it. Uh, whenever yeah. I invite you to come motorcycle racing with me, ignore the last, whatever, eight minutes of this podcast. Uh, not yeah. relevant. Totally fine. Um. So we decided as a team that this year we would try to win the Grom class. Um, and in our organization, this is actually the last year of the Grom class. Um, the Groms have to be almost completely stock. You can change the, uh, the exhaust. You can change the intake. And you can uh, change the suspension different shock and different fork springs and that sort of thing. Everything, like, internally, the motor has to be completely stock. Can't mess with the motor at all. There's very little that you can do to the bike. Um, it's going to have its original, whatever it is, 11 horsepower, um, four-speed <laughs> transmission. Can't change the gearing. Um, have fun. And yeah. uh, we looked at that. We looked at who was competing in it. And we figured out that if we attended, if we just attended all the races... And we circulated, stayed on the bike for all the races. We thought we could win the championship. We didn't even have to be very good. We just had to be there. Because the scoring system for it is basically, if you do a lap, you get a point. Okay. And however many laps you have at the end of the year, whoever has the most laps wins. 
the end. Incredibly proper, simple scoring system. Proper endurance race stuff. Yeah, it's not like, uh, you know, 10 points for first, yada, yada. It's like, no, we got 232 points because we ran 232 laps. And the other guys got, uh, you know, 228 points. And, and it all adds up. So what, what that really does uh, is it rewards staying on the bike. Um, because sure. if you fall off the bike, even a really simple crash, fall off the bike, you need to pick it back up, you need to go into the pits, you need to change a brake lever or something like that, that's going to lose you 10 or 12 laps right there. Um, if you actually break something and you need to fix the bike and you lose, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, that's 30 or 40 laps. Cause we're running about one minute laps at most of the tracks we run at. Um, if you break the bike partway through the race and you lose a hundred or 200 laps because you can't continue, that's like, it crushes your whole season. So hmm. it, it very much rewards, uh, consistency over speed to win a championship. Now, we also happen to actually win um, the majority of the races this year anyway, um, which proved maybe we didn't suck as much as we thought we did. Um, or we just had really soft competition. It's not really relevant historically. I mean, the fact is we won, so we're going we're gonna to so, go with that. So why... Why that class? Like when you guys were talking about it in the off season and trying to figure out what class to do to compete in, why did you choose this class? Was it because it wasn't as populated because of the bikes and what you had? What was it? Uh, primarily, it was because that's what we had. Um, the the my very good friend Derek that I race with it will he'll be worth putting on a podcast sometime because he's kind of a nut job. He's fantastic. <laughs> Um, he purchased uh, a race grom off Craigslist um, when I was at my summer cottage uh, two summers ago. And he's like, dude, I bought a bike. We're going racing. <laughs> what? We're doing, what are we doing? He's like, no, we're going to endurance race when you get back. It'll be great. Um, and I had done, at this point, I had done exactly one track day on his bike and had crashed twice while doing that. And he was convinced by my spectacular achievements on that one day on his KX65 that we definitely needed to go endurance racing. And so he bought this Grom and <laughs> decided that's what we were going to do. And so Jeez. once we had it, once we had it, um, that's what we raced because it's a, a class that, that um, the bike is basically indestructible, um, which we find appealing. Um, yes. and, um, Groms are fairly uh, easy to race for long periods of time. They have really relaxed geometry to them. So, uh, physically they're a bit less demanding than, than riding a, a GP style bike. Um, and also they accept a wide range of human being sizes. Um, I'm the smallest person on our team and the, the, well, no, I'm not, uh, we have a we have a 15 year old girl who races with us on our team, and yeah, we'll talk um, about her in a minute. We'll talk about her in a minute. And um, the the largest member of our team, Mike, is probably I don't know six one, six two, two hundred pounds. Um, and trying to fit Mike onto a much smaller motorcycle than that is comical. Even though his his sprint bike is a KX65, when you see him on it, you're like, 
dude, you know that's like a children's dirt bike, right? And you're not a child. <laughs> um, even though he has figured out how to go really quite fast on it. Um, doing For him, it's physically much more demanding just because you're, you're cramped up on something and you have to move a lot more and things like that. So, hmm. um, okay. so we decided we were going to win. We were going to win endurance. And so we did the first two races of the year. And um, Kaylee, who's our fourth, became our fourth member. Her team was just, um, she was having a little little bit of trouble keeping, like, like making sure that everybody was going to be there at every event. Um, and so I was talking to her about it. And I said, you can really just join our team if you're, I mean, she just wanted the laps. She wants to, she wants to race big bikes on big tracks. She does race a Ninja 300 on big tracks. Um, and so this was about racing experience to her. And I said, if, if what team you're on isn't particularly important, you should just come race with us um, because we're going to be here at every event. Uh, she also raced a Grom in endurance racing. And I said, just show up and ride because uh, you're faster than us because basically every teenage girl that races in this race series is faster than us, um, which is kind of a universal truth of racing tiny motorcycles. Um, so uh, she raced with us, um, put in faster lap times than us the whole time, and definitely helped us win uh, individual races and the championship. So, wow. um, And the most, I will say the most interesting, so usually it was just like we went out, we circulated for four hours, they counted the laps, and we won. And there's not a whole lot to talk about with the races. The yeah. only race that is was interesting, like like super interesting, was the one race we had in Denton this year. Um, because of COVID, uh, everything was weird. And we know that normally we would have seven races in a season. We only had five this year. And the schedule was goofy because the schedule we had at the beginning of the year meant nothing, sure. um, like pretty much all other race series. So we had one race right. in Denton, which is up by Dallas, Texas. And uh, we showed up there, and we had we had a sub on our team. Um because Mike was off doing something. And so we had, I was there. Uh, my friend Derek was there. Derek had crashed uh, the two weekends before that and hurt his shoulder. And the doctor told him, like, dude, you are seriously not supposed to ride motorcycles. And he was like, cool, I'll be gentle. <laughs> we, had, we had Kaylee, who uh, is your run-of-the-mill 15-year-old girl who had, like, three other championship series that she was competing for on different bikes and um, despises riding in the rain, which is about to become super relevant. And we had invited uh, my friend Scott, who uh, I told you about him previously, has an artificial hip and someone else's liver inside him. And this is not and, me. Uh, this is a not different you, different Scott, Scott. different Scott. Uh, we refer to him as maybe Scott and there's a long story behind that. And, uh, maybe Scott had at this point ridden probably a mm, hundred laps on a motorcycle. And we convinced him he, he should go, he should definitely go endurance racing with us. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> seem like, like many. No. But he he's actually he's uh, he's almost certainly better than I am at riding motorcycles. He just which almost everybody's better than me at riding motorcycles if they get enough experience. It's I'm not a hard person to to beat. But the the relevant part of this is we have a we have a guy with an injured shoulder, a teenage girl who hates rain, uh, due to the bionic leg and a borrowed liver, 
and me, who's not very good at riding motorcycles, and as we were gridding up for the four-hour race, it started raining. And the had, cool had thing about motorcycle Had you ever in the rain yet? Uh, yes, I've ridden in the rain. I don't okay. like it. <laughs> yeah? Uh, it's, yeah. It's fair to say... It's fair to say riding in the rain is not cool on a motorcycle. Um, but, but we race in the rain. That's just what we do. Uh, also, we have, we have an amazing set of rain tires, um, which are these super soft cut tires. They are theoretically just magical in the rain. They turn a wet track into a dry track feeling-wise, and we didn't put those on. Um, oh. Why? <laughs> we, because Why? we had... So, so they're, they're like any, they're like any wets where you've only got a limited amount of time you can use them and they'll overheat and melt off. Sure. Um, and we have a four hour race coming. So you kind of have to figure into your strategy. Do we have enough time to go back to dry tires if it stops raining? So you have to come in and you have to change wheels and figure that into the time involved in it versus how much time it's likely to give you versus just driving around slowly in the rain. And we looked at the radar and we went, dude, it's going to rain for like 10 minutes. It'll be fine. There's like one little tiny line of storms. Yeah, this this we'll sounds like a few weekends we had too. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you're like, dude, we'll go out on dries. It, the track will dry and it'll be fine. Right. That's that, that theory that you got. It's like a really good idea. Yeah. And so uh, our race tires at this point are are hard compound slicks. They do not have any tread in them at all. And I get to grid and it is pouring. Like giant Texas raindrop, two inches an hour, pouring down rain. And I... You and I have talked about before, like, oh, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done, and I'm not sure I'm having fun at all. And I definitely had that thought on the start. So, um, if I, you didn't, I would think less of you. <laughs> the The good news is the 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 majority of the rain actually did stop after about twenty five minutes or so. Um. So the, the pouring down super heavy rain, I'm going to die. I only had to ride in for 25 minutes. Um, Out, and how long was your stint? Uh, my stint was supposed to be half an hour. But okay. waiting on the sidelines, I have a dude with a broken shoulder, bionic man with a liver, and a 15-year-old girl. And... When the rain, you know this, when the rain stops, that's not, that doesn't mean dry track, right? It just means it's not actively raining anymore. Right. Um, and the grip doesn't come back because the rain stopped. And so I just stayed out and I just kept riding. Um, and it was, the, the ground has a clock on it. One of the best things about riding a street bike versus a race bike is it's got the full instrumentation on it. So it has a mm. clock on it. So you can see how long you've been out there. And at about 52 minutes of riding, Jesus. the track got like a dry, a completely dry line formed. Finally, there was a dry line. And I was like actually getting knee down and thought that this didn't suck and life was going to go on. So I made the call to come in at an hour um, and hand the bike off to to maybe Scott. And he headed out and I said, stay on the dry line. 
And uh, he stayed on the dry line and did his half an hour stint, and everything was great. And by the time he came in, the entire track was dry, and the whole ra- rest of the race uh, went off without a hitch. Um, so that was like the only drama all year was that that one that one hour. I I assume. Do you guys have any form of communication between drivers and crew? Uh, no. Um, it's legal. Some people do run helmet communicators. We've tried it, and we find it to be extremely distracting. Um, and so we have a clock, and when we decide it's time to come in, we always have a spotter watching the track because you, you need to do that in motorcycle racing because if somebody falls down, you may need somebody to go help you know, yes. pick up their shattered body and get the bike back in so you can take the bike out again and put them in an ambulance. Whatever. It's about the race, right? <laughs> Teamwork. So, so when you come by, you you look at the spotter and you tap the top of your helmet to let them know that you are coming in in two laps. And so then the spotter's job is to yell over to the next poor bugger who's waiting to zip up their leathers, put their helmet on, and be ready to go out. Um, and we and, and it works really really well. Um, other teams use pit boards um, to sort of tell people what's going on, but because we have a clock on the bike and you can look down and sort of know ahead of time, you know, I have half an hour to, to ride. Um, and you can signal to people, um, we've had people come in early before, like after 20 minutes and be like, yeah, cool. It's way too hot for me to do half an hour so they can tap their helmet and they'll come in early and it's worked out pretty well. So when you're out there and so it sounds like you know, time stints are a little bit more fluid um, and it gets past 45 minutes. Is that abnormal? Like, would they be standing on the sidelines, like asking each other what you're, what's actually going through your mind? Yeah. If somebody does something that's, that's not part of the plan. Yeah. It gets kind of annoying in that case. Everybody knew what I was doing. Implicitly, they knew what I was doing. Um, I was going to ride until the track was not wet anymore. Um, and they knew that at the you know the half hour when they thought I was going to come off, and I just you know I went by my spotter and I just waved my hand at him, and he nodded at me, and he understood that I was going to ride until I felt that it was an appropriate time to swap bikes with people. Um, mm-hmm. And and no matter what, the guy on the bike is in charge um, to, to yeah. any extent. You can't make somebody come off track. Sure. Um, but if you, don't f- if you don't follow the plan, it makes it much, much harder to you know, do fluid rider changes and that sort of thing because you can't sit there when it's, when it's 98 degrees with leathers and a helmet on waiting for somebody to come in. You'll die. Right. Um, You'll bake to death. So you have to have some system of telling people that, you know, they need to be ready. And that's a lot easier if everybody can look at a clock and and know that that's about what's going to happen. So right. once they knew I wasn't coming in, you know, nobody sat there with leathers on until I indicated to them that, that I was doing what I was doing. So, uh, yeah, motorcycle racing's weird. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that's, that's endurance racing. We could talk about sprint racing too. So we won the championship. We won the Grom championship. I am a champion. I raced every event of the year, but the second half of, we could talk about the fact that my, my, my daughter also won a championship. Um, yes. 
she races with me, but that's like a whole other thing. Talking yeah. about the fact that my daughter races with me and she's faster than me and I, all I that stuff. I feel like she needs to tell us that story. Yeah, let's let's wait. We could uh, we can you can interview her because I know all the stories already because I was there. Right. But uh, so that's that's endurance racing. Uh, we also do sprint racing, um, where I won. I also won a class championship this year. I am the the super sport class champion. And uh, the that only thing sounds did, cool. I know it does. It really does. Okay, but I'm going to tell you the reality. The reality is, super sport is a class for basically dirt bikes that for four stroke dirt bikes that are unmodified other than tires. So you can do basically nothing to them other than put a different set of tires on and go racing. So the class is for um, kids dirt bikes. Um, I race a Honda, I race a 2001, maybe, Honda XR100. Um, it is a spectacular machine, and I love it. Um, it is. It has been, over the course of probably 8,000 laps that I've put on it since I started riding it, I, uh, I've put two sets of tires on it, and I checked the valves once, and they did not need adjusting. Um, okay. And I, I, I change the oil when I, f- when I see fit. That, um, that, that sounds like B-spec life. That sounds like driving yeah. a Honda Fit or a Mazda 2. You, exactly. You make sure the tires are on it and maybe check the oil if you've got time. So like most B-spec cars, most people drive them and they're like, this is cool. Also a little bit lame because we're going super slow and people move on to other things. Um, so uh, super sport is largely populated by people who have just started racing and children. <laughs> like that's the other did, thing about motorcycle did you racing. Beat it's, up kids. Is this what you did? How you got your championship? Uh, yeah. 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 There's no other way to put it. Yes. Yes. Uh, but I had to work really hard for it. So so that's the other thing about motorcycle racing um, at the level that I do it at. It, it's very much a family sport, um, and it's a way to introduce people to motorcycle racing regardless of what age you are. And you can start racing in our series at eight years old. Um, Jeez. My, and, you're on, and, and when I say it's not just like we're there, like eight-year-olds are there for the weekend. Eight-year-olds are physically on track with you in your class racing against you. Um, my main competitor in my class this year was an eight-year-old named Chase, and the dude was super hard to beat. Um, he well, had, somebody had he, to make you work for it. Oh, my God. Well, okay, so there's there's a couple things. One, like, his bike wasn't 100% legal and this will come into play at the end of the year but that's not really the point it wasn't like he beat me because his bike was too fast he beat me because he was really good at riding the the races he beat me at he beat me because he was a better motorcycle racer than I was um and at the beginning of the year we just sort of started and I rode away from him and by halfway through the year he could start faster than me because he weighs like, I don't know, 45 pounds or something, and he just blows away at the starts. And then getting past him is super hard because his lines are amazing. 
And when I'm when I'm riding against my friends, like, uh, you know, I'll put a hard pass on you and stand you up and, you know, we'll do that. But when you've got somebody that's eight years old and their mom and dad are watching them race, yeah. like... Like, you can't just stuff it up the inside and make them stand up the bike. And, like, you you, you really don't want to wreck somebody else's kid. Yeah, if you, think, if you think Little League is tough, imagine if your kid was playing against a grown-ass <laughs> man. Right. And, and your kid's trying to catch a ball and the dude is going to, like, slide into the base and just knock him off. Yeah. You you can't really do that. So there is there's definitely some some etiquette. So in order to pass them, you really need to do like very clean, well thought out passes. And when somebody has more acceleration than you do, you can't pass them on the straights. There's no way to do it. And passing so under braking can be sketchy. Passing under braking can be sketchy. So you're looking at you know these mid corner passes which are always hard whether you're in a car or a bike or anything um it's always tough so so yeah that was my main points competition for the year it individual races i had other competitors that show up it it i mostly won the championship because i was at the i was at more events than anybody else i did win several races including my last race this weekend um but uh, being there, like in any championship, winning a championship is different than winning a race, right? Um, sure. You don't want to be the guy who wins a championship without winning any events, any individual events. You still want to be like, you know, I was good and I won the championship. But um, part of my winning the championship was being the guy who was dedicated to the class and showing up. I missed one event. I actually missed one event on purpose because it would have changed the point structure such that there was no way I could win the class. Um, hmm. Which sounds weird, but the eight-year-old was doing so good. And I had just accumulated points at the beginning of the season. And he was accumulating points in the mid part of the season. And I figured it out. And I was like, I was like okay, it's going to take me a bunch of work to bring that bike. Because that's, uh, that's not my normal race bike in the... the the later part of the season we got new bikes and so i went cool if i miss one event um he's gonna take me on points and he deserves it because he's gotten to be a great racer and that's awesome and i want to watch watch this eight-year-old win and i show up to the last event and i'm like cool i am definitely going to going to race this last event and um i did that and and his dad goes no no we decided his bike wasn't legal so he's not going to race it uh... and i was like oh Awesome. That's great. Uh, um, that's thanks. And I just did something with the recording here. It's still recording, so we're good. Okay. Um, and so I won the championship. Uh, my last race was epic. Uh, I beat a 14-year-old girl who has just <laughs> who in, in the race. <laughs> In the race. In the race. Yes, in the race. I think that's super important. Um, it's actually uh, a girl that I loaned a motorcycle to so she could start. I actually loaned her a motorcycle and a set of leathers and a bunch of stuff so she could start riding like four months ago. She rode okay. some uh, a little bit of motocross when she was young. 
And then she did gymnastics for a number of years, and her dad started racing, and she was like, Dad, this is the best. We need to we need to race motorcycles again. And so I met him at the track, and he was deciding what to do about getting her a bike. And I said, you can borrow this extra bike that I have. And so she actually learned to ride on a bike that I owned, and then eventually they got a bike that was suitable for the class. And she got super fast, like ridiculously super fast and the only reason i beat her is because i got i got her on the start and she couldn't find a way past me um because again we're only talking like six seven eight laps right yeah six lap race six lap race and she couldn't pass me in six laps and every time we'd go into a corner um and we go especially when we go out of a corner um because she was so much better getting out of corners than me, you'd hear her get like right, like right up against the rear tire of my bike. And she just couldn't find a way by. And she got off and she was simultaneously super happy and super yeah. frustrated. And I was like, cool, when we go ride next time, I'll teach you how to beat me. Because it was, it was literally just one of those momentum. You, you've raced cars where you, you've been like, okay, the only way to pass this guy is to give it up on this corner so I can get momentum coming out of another corner. Yes. And sure. she she doesn't quite have that racecraft yet. Um I'm ninety nine percent certain she could have beat me had she, you know, had she done that use this one easy trick and uh she would have got me. So I'm uh the next time we go practice I'm gonna I'm gonna teach her how to do that and beat me. Um because I want her to beat me because she's better than me and she's like right there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna string a yarn here and you you keep talking about how you race with and against these young people and that you are loaning them equipment that you're helping them develop as racers and I also know that you are a stay-at-home dad for four kids that we've talked about. And I also know for a fact that you are part of the reason why I even got into the One Lap of America in the first place. Sorry about that. You you should apologize. (laughs) Financial ruin. Um, But there's, there's this whole nurturing mentoring development growth aspect that just seems to flow out of you so naturally in in a competitive environment now i think if you were to separate those things both would look very natural but when you put them together when you're both when you need to be simultaneously competitive and nurturing that's that's interesting can you can you talk to me about that how how is it that you can hold these two things together it it seems incredibly natural to me i don't even i don't see them as separate um i see competition and success happening in in the success doesn't have to be mine for me to get great joy out of competition 
Um, and it's mm-hmm. not that not that like I take joy in other people beating me. That's not really what's going on. But I, I take great joy when either I do really, really well or I see the people around me do really, really well. Um, there's nothing there's nothing better than watching somebody be better and mm-hmm. watching that i th- that that better part of them come out and having them win through being better and and i love absolutely love being part of that experience for someone um and i've been that way you know i was an autocross instructor for the better part of 10 years and nothing made me happier than building drivers that beat me um I loved making students faster than me. Um, and then you, and then I'd hand them off to somebody else to make them faster some more. Um, and, and so I, I love that part of competition, um, watching people succeed through their own hard work. Um, and if I can be part of that hard work, it makes me really, really happy. So I guess that just leads me to ask who was that for you then? So if you're if you've been able to do that and be that for others, if you've if you get so much energy and joy at helping others develop and grow and become faster. Who who was it earlier in your life that did that for you or was that something that was missing for you and you wanted to be that for someone else i came to to competition like in general competition pretty late in life uh, compared to most other people i never never competed in motorsports at all even a teensy tiny little bit until my mid 20s probably 27 so late 20s probably 27 years old first time i autocrossed um autocrossed a car um prior to that competition in my life like i was the kid who struck out at t-ball so i was on a t-ball team but i wasn't really competing um uh, i ran cross country in high school for one year because somebody's got to finish last and uh (laughs) that was me and okay. and so uh, my list of physical talents is extremely short. And so as a kid, I didn't really come. I wouldn't say I, I would say I didn't really compete in anything other than normal sibling stuff. I'm one of five kids. So, you know, we it, it, like the act of 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 beating your siblings is just one of those things that happens no matter what. Um, right. uh and and being the second of five means that I was bigger than three of them, so that let me have a have a slight competitive advantage over the rest of over three people at least until they until they caught up with me, which they all did. Um, but no, I didn't compete. Um, so I would say I would suggest I like that role. I didn't really have someone because I wasn't I wasn't a competitive person. Um, that's just not what I did. And part of that was because, uh, I wasn't good enough at anything to actually compete. 
Um, I could participate, mm-hmm. but that's not the same as competing, especially when you're a kid. To to go into something and know you're not going to win when you're 8 or 10 or 12, 14 years old doesn't feel like competition. It didn't feel like competition to me at the time. Um, it just felt like, you know, not playing, yeah, but playing, participating. So uh, I was, I was why they invented participation trophies. Um, kids like me, because somebody looked at me and felt bad. They were like, that dude's never going to win anything. Like he's never actually going to win anything. And we feel super bad and we should invent a way so that he can have a trophy. Um, and I so, will tell you, growing up and only having participation trophies, they don't really feel that good. So why did you do it? Uh, primarily socially, because uh, at that time in that place, growing up in the Midwest in the 80s, everybody played D-ball, right? Uh, they're just like, that's what you did. Your parents signed you up and you played T-ball. And I went to a really small high school. I graduated with like 52 people. And so um, I I ran uh, track and cross country, not because I was any good at running. And anybody who knows me from that time or even right now can confirm running's not really something I'm good at. But all my friends were doing it. So I went and did it. And it was worth worth finishing last to go hang out with my buddies. Um, although, arguably, <laughs> driving cars, it's you know, it's worth finishing mid-pack or backpack to go hang out with my buddies, too. Well, so there's a little bit of that still going on. Well, yeah, and I, I drew that direct line from, you know, when we talk about the One Lap of America and the ARCs, which stands for All Remaining Cars. Yeah. Because in the One Lap, you, you run with specific run groups, and they really only call about the first six or seven run groups right and then it's just like all right all remaining cars figure it out and come up in groups of four to six cars and we'll run you and really with the exception of now i've pretty much all even when i ran my cadillac i was pretty much always in all remaining cars um either the last run group or when I ran the Cadillac, you know, probably third from the end. Um, and that was, that was all on the car. Bring, bring 550 horsepower to a track and you're going to beat somebody. Um, oh yeah. Because you know, some dudes there in a Miata that's got 110 and like, you don't even have to be very good. You can stay ahead of that guy. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> don't pick on the little guy. Uh, so, I, I didn't know. I, I have done nothing but, but drive slower and slower cars uh, basically every year on one lap. I have gotten slower every time I've, I've changed cars. Because, and kind of from what I hear and, you know, knowing the guys that you drive with, you just like hanging out. I mean, you, of course, you want to do well, at least the best that you can in that particular car situation track but you're there to you're there to be with people yeah racing is all about people um which is one of the things i found out with motorcycle racing i have a i have an interest in motorcycles in general i did uh i rode dirt bikes as a kid um bought them against my parents wishes when i was a teenager and rode them around because mechanically i love mechanical stuff and i I think pretty much anybody who gets involved in racing 
has a you know a love of internal combustion racy stuff and so um in a world where i didn't have cars to race you know just to just to fool around on um fooling around on cars is uh not particularly safe and i understood that so i fooled around on dirt bikes that i bought for 400 bucks and had fun on them sure. and so motorcycles have always been kind of a thing and so when i had the opportunity to race them um uh, through an autocross student, I had my buddy Derek, and he was. He, I kind of said, "Oh yeah, I've kind of always wanted to do like a little motorcycle stuff." I heard they do that, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I've done that before, and you should come do that with me." And then you know he invited me to a track, an open track day, and he let me use his bike, and then he bought the Grom, and that all that happened. And uh, I've since found out that it's not terribly normal for somebody like if you offer somebody, you say, "Hey." I've got a motorcycle you can ride on track. You just need, you know, come up with a set of leathers and you can come ride my motorcycle. Most of the people you know will turn you down. Which makes no sense to me because the moment somebody made that offer to me, I was like, cool, dude, where do I get leathers? I got to do this. And I jumped immediately at it. So there's... There's something that is maybe not quite right in my head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh how much time do we have um, yeah that'd be a, that's a whole other podcast yeah and it's i don't know it you know we we talk a lot about why we do these things that objectively certainly subjectively but even objectively are really stupid hobbies genuinely and dumb we enjoy them so much and we're so passionate about them, but we do continuously talk about that the things that we do with cars, with bikes, with whatever hobbies we have in our lives, that that's really just kind of the culture or the language that we end up speaking right, to other people. So if you show up to one of your endurance or sprint race motorcycle weekends, the language and the culture is motorcycles. I mean, you're talking leathers, you're talking suspension, you're talking tires, you're talking about all this stuff. But what you're doing is you are mentoring and help forming young kids into hopefully fully functioning, healthy adults. Right. You are, but the way that you're doing that is through motorcycle racing. Yeah. It, it is, at the end, the beginning, the end, the everything is is the people involved in what you're doing. If I didn't, if it weren't for the fact that I show up to a Texas Mini Grand Prix weekend and I'm surrounded by almost a hundred percent wonderful people. Um, and certainly the, the people that I pit next to and I invite to be on my team and, and invite to ride my bikes. Those are, those are wonderful people. The, the same wonderful people that you find in any branch of racing. Um, and that's when I kind of realized it doesn't, I'll go back. I will go back and I'll race cars. I'll race GLTC with you guys. There will be a time when when I go back and do that stuff. Um, 
because I need to be around those. I need to be around you people. Um, and what, what do you mean, you people? You know what I mean, you people. You know exactly what I mean. And and so it doesn't have to be motorcycles. It is right now because there are wonderful people riding motorcycles that I get, that I get to hang out with. And uh, my daughter, who gets to race with me, I wanted uh, to has ask also, about this. Has also fallen in love with the sport. Like she's she, so I have, I have four kids. Um, this is my my number three kid. Um, and of all four of my kids, she is the only one who basically watched me put on leathers the first time and sit on a motorcycle and was like, dude, that. How do I, dad, how can I come do the thing that you're doing? Like now, I need to do that. And my other three kids were uh, between like, oh yeah, I mean, that's it's cool. I'm glad you're doing that. Have fun. And like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever watched you do. Please don't die. Um, and so, it's you know, there, yeah, there, there's a certain aspect of it. I've had people talk to me. They're like, oh, you know, my kid's six and I want to get him into racing. And I, I was like, cool. I think you supporting them is a wonderful thing, but keep in mind that they have to want it. You can't make someone into, I don't think you can make someone into a racer. You can't want that for them. Um, it is, a it's a unique sport in the fact that you have to want that yourself when you go out there. Mm. Um, especially wheel to wheel racing, right? You have to want to be in a, in a situation that is, that's definitely physically dangerous, whether you're in a car or a bike and you have to, to have a desire to experience that intensity and come away from it and say that was a thing I want to do again. And not everybody's built that way. Yeah, you can you can really only do it once naively about what you're right. getting into. And after right. that, it's a choice. Pretty much fully understanding of what the consequences could be. Right. In either um, direction. And yeah, and it's either you know, it's either your jam or it's not. I don't know anybody who is who is ambivalent about racing and goes, yeah, you know, I could take it or leave it either way. I don't know anyone who's like that. Uh, the closest is my, my number two kid, my son. He has autocross with me. Um, all my kids autocross with me as a part of learning to drive. That's part of their driver's training. Um, and he's rallycrossed with me. And... He has now raced motorcycles with me. He raced a motorcycle weekend with me. He learned how to do it. He is, he is definitely the best one in the family from a just a purely physical standpoint. Um, he didn't turn the fastest lap times, but he that had more to do with the amount of time he spent learning than his his abilities. Um, and he raced a weekend, and he goes, "Ah, that was fun. I might do that again later." And I don't, he is the, he is probably to this day, the only person I know who is kind of ambivalent about motorsports, who's gotten to experience it and either, either walks away and goes, no, no, absolutely not. No. Or yeah, cool. I've got two kidneys. I definitely only need one of them. And the other one should fund my racing. 
which is how most of you know most of the people that you and I hang out with. Um, yeah. If if there was a good black market for kidneys that we could tap into, I don't know that anybody that we know would have two kidneys right now. Yeah, that that'd be a. Well, you're gonna talk about a slippery slope. <laughs> so, so just just real quick. So we were talking about you know kind of mentoring and growing and kind of developing the young young people that you race with and against and even with them um what's what's it been like what has it meant to you to have your daughter a part of that cycle um well there's there's two aspects to it the first is that um it's really cool to have your kid be your buddy um because as much as parents we would love to tell ourselves you know we would like we say to ourselves our kids are our friends and our kids are our friends as well as being our children but it's a lot different to have a kid who's your buddy who's just like dude you want to go hang out yeah let's go hang out the track cool that's rad and and so it's a different relationship um anybody who's got a whole bunch of kids knows that you have you have you can love all of your kids equally and still have different relationships with all of them because they're different people um, yep. You don't have identical relationships with with your friends or your siblings or your parents because they're all different people. So what a person brings to the table determines what sort of relationship you're going to have. So, so of my four kids, at this point in time, she is my buddy more than my other three kids. And I don't think it'll hurt my kid and my any of my other three kids' feelings to hear me say that out loud because they can see that, right? Like... You know, we're loading up the car at five in the morning and we're going to go to the track. Um, you know, that's just what we do. We hang out. Um, and the other aspect of it, which is true for not just my daughter, but for any of the kids that you watch race, is you watch them grow as a person. Um, when you learn any niche skill something that you believe is like super cool when you learn to do that competently it it affects you in the rest of your life um to be a 14 year old girl and walk into your school and just carry around with you in your own head i'm a motorcycle racer is is something that nobody takes away from you and it's it's tough being a kid no matter what, right? Like being a kid sucks. Um, it's awesome. It's also a pain. We've all been through junior high and high school. We we remember that. Yes. But but to carry that thing, to be able to carry that with you, is a really powerful thing. Um, and I think you know racing motorcycles, racing cars, racing go karts. Um, riding rodeo bulls um i've met kids who rode rodeo bulls those you know they Jeez. just they understand that they have a thing and it's become intrinsic to them and it and it gives them it's not just self-confidence because a whole lot of kids have, have self-confidence but it's more a self-awareness of who they are as a person um because kids are learning to be themselves 
um, at that age, arguably we're still learning to be ourselves in our thirties and forties, right? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure out who I am even, even as an adult, but you're doing that especially, um, through your teen years, you're learning to be you and yeah. to have that part of you that, you know, uh, is a really power. I, it seems to me in the kids that I've seen do, it seems to be a very powerful thing. I know I'm a motorcycle racer. Yeah. And not, and not so much, like you said, not just a confidence but an acceptance and along with that awareness that you talked about right of all aspects of themselves right but being able to be developed and become aware of in the aspect and environment of motorsports right um, and it's just, it, it's not, it's not a thing that's unique to motorsports. It's just something that I see happening in motorsports because, because that's where I hang out because that's where all, you know, that's, yeah. you know, the, the art the, the interview we did with Tom O'Gorman, he says, that's kind of where all my friends are. Um, yeah. I go to the track because all my friends are there. Um, and, um, it, could I figure out how to do that with kids in another environment? Probably, but I'm at the track. So those are the kids that I know because that's the environment that I live in, um, which makes me super happy. Talk about a capper. That's a great way. Yeah, I like going, I like going out being super happy. That makes, that makes me super happy. <laughs> well, Seth, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on uh, our podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll be we'll be diving into some of the aspects of motorcycle racing versus automotive, and just kind of the differences. That's that's going to kind of be a a theme that that runs through pretty much all of our conversations. I think just from our backgrounds. Right, um, but we'll we'll definitely have a few episodes in the future on the specific differences, similarities, um, things like that. So, if if you're into that sort of thing, definitely keep an eye out there. Uh, in the meantime, I guess we'll wrap it up. That sounds uh, good. Track walking, uh, Instagram, Facebook at Track Walking Podcast uh, on any of the places where you get your podcasts and on the Track Tune website with our brother and sister um, podcasts. But for this evening, until next week, I'm Scott and I'm Seth. We are Track Walking. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>